Welcome to Pod Academy, an international podcast that explores topics like history, politics, science, psychoanalysis, and more through movies and TV shows. And today I'd like to thank recent patron Isaac Proud. Thank you, Isaac. As well as recent contributor on our PayPal account, Anton van Usbre. Thanks, Anton. Every human society has agreed upon myths that tell its own particular story in its own particular way. The official Chinese story is that of an eternal superpower that is now coming back onto its own after a momentary lapse. The French convey a story of long and bloody struggle for liberté, égalité and fraternité. And the current German story is about a people coming to grips with the terrible things that they've done, vowing to be better and never to let their nationalistic demons loose again. Stories matter because they open up some political avenues and close down others. In our new series, The Downfall of the U.S. in Movies, we talk about the American story through American movies that depict American historical events. In our opening salvo of this series, we use the 2000 Mel Gibson movie, The Patriot, to talk about the American creation story, its war of independence. The national story of that war has the relentless American fighting for freedom against the evil Nazi-like British Empire. But the American creation story didn't end in 1776. The result of that war was not the founding of the United States, but independence for the former colonies, which organized in a loose confederation. Today we'll talk about the second installment of that creation myth, the writing of the United States Constitution. We'll do it via the 1989 movie, A More Perfect Union. Our southern state governments, indeed the state houses in every corner of the union, reek with corruption. The result, gentlemen, this nation becomes every day weaker. Her borders threatened by Spain to the west, Great Britain to the north. Can't you see, Mr. Lee? The glory of the revolution is being blasted. The states must renounce their jealousies and give some power to a national government, otherwise America will dissolve. Written for the 200th anniversary of the Constitutional Convention held in Philadelphia in 1787. Many historians were involved in the making of this movie, and the official commission of the bicentennial of the United States Constitution deemed it, and I quote, of exceptional merit. Well, really, hmm, I will beg to differ. I'm also going to sprinkle in this episode some bits from Lin-Manuel Miranda's mega-hit musical Hamilton, which is very much guilty of distortions and outright lies. How does a bastard orphan son of a whore and a Scotsman dropped in the middle of a forgotten spot in the Caribbean by providence impoverished and squalor grow up to be a hero and a scholar the ten dollar founding father without a father got a lot farther by working a lot harder by being a lot smarter by being a self-starter by 14 they placed him in charge of the trade and charter well the word got around they said this kid is insane man took up a collection just to send him to the mainland Get your education, don't forget from whence you came And the world's gonna know your name What's your name, man? Alexander Hamilton My name is Alexander Hamilton The goal is clear Create a neat, clean narrative 
the best people of the time came together, debated, argued, compromised, and pieced together the groundbreaking founding document of their new nation, which we now know has risen to the top of the food chain, the United States. This narrative in a world dominated by American cultural imperialism is downright historically criminal. It perpetuates all the harmful and blatantly non-democratic aspects of this said constitution. It turns the constitution from a great first effort for its time into a sacred text, a binding religious document that 230 years later is still empowering anti-democratic forces within the U.S., allowing them to rule and dictate policy contrary to the will of the people. And this is kind of a big deal since the preamble of the Constitution says we the people of the United States in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility. Yeah, well, 230 years on, we know that justice and tranquility were not achieved. So the downfall of the U.S. in movies the birth of the nation coming up now. If I could distill it down into one concept that we are pursuing in New Zealand, it is simple and it is this, kindness. The United States is the world's largest giver, but few give anything to us. Vive la République! Vive la France! American people in this country need, they need somebody that is unabashed and that has the courage and the conviction to stand up for them and to call out the rigging of the system. I have very good news to give to everyone. There is nothing extraordinary happening in the Amazon region. Quite to the contrary, uh, these uh, fires are pretty average. Hi everybody, welcome to another Pod Academy episode. I'm doing this one solo. So the way we'll do it, I'll break it all down in several ways. I'll talk about the false narrative that was created, about the lack of political context in the American creation myth, about some of the results of the popular depiction of the US Constitution, and how a different story could have benefited Americans and us all. Okay, so let's start with the narratives. The convention during which the U.S. Constitution was written is depicted in American pop culture as a quintessentially American process, including three of the most American of virtues. Common sense compromise, good intentions, and the inevitable and unstoppable march towards progress and a more perfect union. Those virtues are conveyed to the world through American stories told via movies and TV shows. And the urge to share the American blessings with the world is actually part of the DNA of this nation's founding document. The formulators of this document saw themselves as the forward legions of justice and progress. During the war, I staked my life and what is more important, my reputation on the belief that Americans could govern themselves and that all mankind should share in that privilege. Doctor, many know by heart your credo that the rights of Americans should be the rights of all men. Well then, sir, you see the danger I'm in. If our convention fails, all mankind will suffer. But as we speak, things are not looking up for the aforementioned United States of America. And our starting point for this series of episodes is the political, moral, and social crisis it is suffering from, 
and how it can be traced not only to the most significant events in the country's history, but also to the way these events are depicted in American popular culture. The way they are cemented in the collective memory. And while one may excuse the distortion of facts in commercial movies about American historical events as not wanting to make audiences clutch their pearls and feel uncomfortable, God forbid, a more perfect union can make no such excuses. It is not a commercial enterprise, but an educational one. So in many ways, it is much more significant when these false narratives come with a literal seal of approval by people who should know better. They can't plead ignorance. They have all the facts. They just choose to ignore the facts that make the story of the U.S. Constitution an uncomfortable one. And what is Lin-Manuel Miranda's excuse for saying that Hamilton was an abolitionist, for example, even though he wasn't? Practice the law, practically perfected it. I've seen injustice in the world and I've corrected it. Now for a strong central democracy, if not, then I'm Socrates throwing verbal rocks at these mediocrities. Hamilton at the Constitutional Convention. I was chosen for the Constitutional Convention. There is a New York Junior Delegate. Now what I'm gonna say may sound indelicate. Rosen proposes his own form of government. What? His own plan for a new form of government. What? Talks for six hours, the convention is listless. Right, young man. Yo, who the why not tell a complex story of a complex man living in an unjust time? All societies are made up of warring factions, rich against the poor, religion against religion, race against race. A small republic, like a state, too often falls prey to one of these factions. The result? lawlessness and oppression especially against the minorities it is only in a large republic with many different-minded people that no one faction can gain control in such a republic the liberties of all the people are naturally safeguarded such a republic if it were dedicated to justice protected by truth and of the spirit of the people would i believe last through the ages but first it must exist this narrative of good people finding a compromise between the two political factions of the time is a damaging legacy that is now prevalent in all our societies it's a both sides do it kind of thing in that convention the pro and anti-slavery factions compromised that they'll stop the slave trade in um, 20 years the large and small states compromised that the votes cast by Americans living in the small states would carry more weight than the votes of Americans living in large states. Mm. Those were some of the most weighty compromises, with the one about the U.S. Senate causing most of the big win. It is time to compromise on the composition of the Senate. Never, it's inequitable. Well, spoiler alert the more progressive side buckled while the conservative side held up. I guess the lesson is it's always on progressives to give up ground to reactionary forces. Now, after weeks of negotiations, we've now agreed to cut as much spending as the Republicans in Congress originally asked for. I've got some Democrats mad at me, but I said, you know what? Let's get past last year's budget. Let's focus on the future. But we've agreed to a compromise. 
but somehow we still don't have a deal. How many folks are married here? When was the last time you just got your way? Uh, that's not how it works, right? I, I, I mean, the fact is, is that you have to make compromises as a family. That's what we are, the American family. So Democrats and Republicans need to get together, work through their differences. And even though the movie A More Perfect Union gives ample screen time to the convention's debates and machinations, it brushes away an absolutely insane turn of events that led the Founding Fathers to agree on the final version of, the, of their Constitution. We will win, six states to four. Um, not so, I'm afraid. Pearson Few of Georgia have left for New York. Why? To attend Congress. In addition, Mr. Pierce is engaged to fight a duel. Mr. Hamilton, I believe, is to act as his second. Maryland votes. Maryland votes aye. Mr. President, it appears as though the Maryland delegation is not fully represented. Mr. Jennifer is not here. That has not hindered votes in the past, and neither will it now. So long as Mr. Jennifer is in Philadelphia, our rules allow Maryland's vote to be cast. Our rules are very specific. A state, in order to be represented by a quorum, must have at least two delegates in the city. Two in the city, gentlemen. New York has only one. Therefore, Mr. Hamilton may not vote. Say what? Okay, so just so uh, we're on the same page, in terms of the debate, the small states wanted the Senate, the upper house, to be non-representative, non-proportional. Each state has two senators, regardless of its size. The House of Representatives is proportional, and there the biggest states where more Americans live, they have more representatives. So the small states, for their own selfish political reasons that, um, that they rationalize from here to eternity, wanted to have disproportional representation in government. Meaning that if you live in Delaware, your vote matters more than if you live in Virginia. And today in the Senate, regardless of what happens in January in Georgia, the Democratic representatives represent about 20 million people more than the equal number of Republican representatives. So, to recap, Americans living in 2020 live under a non-representative system of government because their constitutional convention in 1787 had rules that said that some guy had to be in Philadelphia for the vote of another guy to count? Does that sound like a solid foundation for a superpower? Had the creation story been told in this manner, more Americans would be calling today for a complete overhaul of Congress to make it truly democratic. Hell, even James Madison, who was the heart and soul of the convention, said that any compromise on representation would be wrong in every which way. The smaller states will oppose our plan at all hazard. Delaware will not want to lose her disproportionate power in a Congress that makes binding laws. Nor would I were I governor of Delaware. But they must. This battle, proportionate representation in Congress, is the battle for the soul of America. Lose it, and the states of America will never form a true union. Win it, God willing, and our nation is saved. But that same medicine later drank the Kool-Aid or merely pretended to do so, so he can justify to himself and the new American citizens why he had to make a grand compromise 
No, I didn't create an abomination that would be impossible to protect. No, no, I was right to give up. We were all. Giving up is great. Compromise is the best thing ever. You should all compromise. All the time. This great compromise has created a new kind of nation. One such as I had never considered. Its national government is strong and sovereign. But it has states which are also strong. Separate states, but a united people. It is neither man nor horse, but like the centaur, half of each. I don't know whether such a creature can survive in the rough and tumble of the world. But I am willing to make the hazard. I am for the compromise. I am for the United States of America. And again, there's a direct line between those compromises to the idea that we have to find compromise today with people who say that climate change is a Chinese hoax and, and that there's no such thing as facts and truth, just factions with competing interests. The small states wanted more power. The large states wanted stability. You have to compromise and that's that. Maybe that's true, but putting unreasonable compromises on a pedestal is part of what fuels regressive forces within and without the US, affecting us all no matter where we live. Okay, now let's talk about the political context of the time and how it's portrayed in the movie. The background for the events is the failure of the former British colonies to cooperate adequately in face of political, social and economic turmoil. The convention was called to deal with this crisis by changing the political structure most of the attendees thought the goal was to tweak the rules around the edges, but then things turned out differently, thanks to an ideological few who pushed the assembly to come out with a radical document for its time, including checks and balances on power and three branches of government, and putting the people in charge of those who govern them. If you ignore all the blood that was shed because of those compromises, that's a beautiful story. In actuality, the creation myth of the U.S. Constitution ignores any political context that is not conducive to the aforementioned false narrative. This movie, A More Perfect Union, was made, as we said, with the active help of historians. But in terms of the context it is providing, it is looking at the world through a keyhole, and it blatantly ignores some of the most significant results of this founding document and its depiction. Slavery is only mentioned in one debate and is brushed away immediately because we have to like these people. In a culture that celebrates superheroes and supervillains, they have to be one or the other. In the same way, in the musical Hamilton, Thomas Jefferson is vilified and becomes like a supervillain in order for the audience to more easily identify with the protagonist Alexander Hamilton. In actuality, the judgment of history sees both men as inherently flawed and full of contradictions. So there's also no mention of the people these European settlers and their ancestors killed and displaced from this very land they are now walking around on. Native Americans, First Nations, indigenous peoples. They're not part of the story, thank you very much. 
So I guess we can't say that the president of this convention, who later became the first American president, George Washington, said this about Native Americans during the War of Independence. The expedition you are appointed to command is to be directed against the hostile tribe of the Six Nations of Indians, with their associates and adherents. The immediate objects are the total destruction and devastation of their settlements and the capture of as many prisoners of every age and sex as possible. It will be essential to ruin their crops now in the ground and prevent their planting more. Mm. Slavery ended, at least the Americans can say that, but the future of the Native Americans within the ever-expanding United States of America included only death, destruction, ethnic cleansing, displacement, betrayal, genocide, and near-total decimation. U.S. governments passed laws that led to untold suffering for people who were viewed as inferior. Now remember the previous bits about the historical role these founding fathers foresaw for the nation they birthed? Native Americans as a whole became American citizens only in 1924. Doesn't sound as convincing with this context, right? Kind of, uh, kind of rings hollow. So historians, politicians, movie makers have conspired for over 230 years to tell Americans and the world that the United States of America is and always has been a force for good and just as important. The United States of America is perpetually getting better. It's baked into the United States Constitution. Hamilton has become not only a smash hit, but a civics lesson our kids can't get enough of. One with fierce, youthful energy. One where rap is the language of revolution and hip-hop its urgent soundtrack. It's a musical about the miracle that is America, a place of citizenship where we debate ideas with passion and conviction. A place of inclusiveness where we value our boisterous diversity as a great gift. A place of opportunity where no matter how humble our origins, we can make it if we try. That's the story of America, an experiment that is not yet finished, a project that belongs to all of us. America is what we, the people, make of it. As long as we stay just like our country, young, scrappy, and hungry. The omission of the Native Americans from the actual constitution of this new nation that, that was about to decimate them and their culture, their omission from a semi-official educational movie about the constitution, it doesn't allow American society today to deal with its dark past. This is the polar opposite of how the Germans dealt with their own dark past. After getting decimated themselves in World War II, they repented and taught generations of Germans about the dangers of expansionism, nationalism, and intolerance. And again, you can draw a straight line between these two different ways of dealing with a nation's dark past through its stories and the German government vehemently opposing the U.S. invasion of Iraq, while the U.S., well, did the invading of Iraq. Okay, moving on. One of the uniquely American quirks about the U.S. Constitution, and a direct result of the way they treat it as a divine text, is the American phenomenon of constitutional originalists. They have a debate between people who think the founding document is a blueprint 
since we now live in the 21st century. And the people who wrote it didn't know what we know and didn't have the privilege of knowing what happened for the past 230 years. But some intelligent people think that Americans cannot stray beyond the boundaries that 18th century people set out all this time ago because... Uh, why exactly? Welcome back. You know that old saying, the Constitution's a living document? Well, U.S. Supreme Court Justice Anton Scalia, he doesn't agree. In fact, he emphatically disagrees. During a lecture at SMU this week, he said, quote, it's not a living document. It's dead, dead, dead. Three times just to make sure everybody got the point. This is nothing to see here. People move along. <laughs> this is Scalia being Scalia. He's an unabashed originalist, a guy who construes the text of the Constitution very, very literally. And uh, this is page 101 from the Scalia playbook. So there's really nothing to take away. You know, there's a school of constitutional thought that says the Constitution is a living, breathing document that changes over time. And Scalia says, well... But didn't he just say that as it related to the Second Amendment? Didn't he just say that there is an interpretation that societies have to make here as to what is in effect for them, uh, the right limits or, or, or freedoms as it relates to, in this case, gun ownership. How is that not a living thing? Well, he's delving back into the history of the Constitution at the time of the, of the founding to divine what he perceives to be the original intent of the framers. They wouldn't have had a leg to stand on were the popular story about the Constitution depicted as an inherently flawed document which it was and is. <laughs> I guess you have to ignore the fact that the founding fathers, in their infinite godlike wisdom, made their document amendable and suggested reform. You, you would think it wouldn't be an issue. So for me, the rise of these constitutional originalists can be blamed on those who propagated the propaganda about the text so that Americans wouldn't focus on all the abhorrent sides of this convention, this constitution, and their history. But because sacred texts were written so long ago, it's easier to believe that they are divine. The US constitution was written by well-documented, flawed individuals 230 years ago. Why? <laughs> in 1787, why should humans who live in the US in 2020 be slaves to a text written by people who thought slavery was swell? People without property shouldn't vote, women shouldn't vote, and that the American people were not to be trusted with the power of electing their president directly. Mm. They debated whether Congress should choose the president or should other representatives choose the president. So did they put that part in the movie? Nah, come on, that would make you feel uncomfortable. Had the American story been told differently, focusing on the imperfect sides of the US Constitution. Instead of treating the Founding Fathers like Marvel Avengers, the absurdity of the Electoral College might have gone into the dustbin of history a long time ago. These stories have political consequences. One of my favorite political sayings is that tradition is merely peer pressure by dead people. Tradition is merely peer pressure by dead people. These dead people planned for their document to be amended, but their compromises made it much more difficult to do just that. Because conservatives will always be a generation late and change will only come at the precipice or after you've fallen off a cliff. See the abolition of slavery only after the American Civil War, the Civil and Voting Rights Acts 
passing only after mass resistance in the American South. And we're all still waiting for the Americans to start working to solve the climate crisis, since they are the number one culprit of that. But who knows? Maybe some constitutional originalist on the U.S. Supreme Court will decide that President Biden's climate plan is, un- is unconstitutional because James Madison said something in uh, 1787, so we must all live underwater or in the scorching heat. Yeah, that makes sense. Mm. Another key in this wonderful compromise was omitted from the movie, known as the Three-Fifths Compromise. Ah, it took a horrible civil war to repeal this dreadful decision that counted each African slave as three-fifths of a human being for the electoral count because the southern states wanted to treat Africans as not actual human beings, but they wanted them to be counted so they would get uh, more influence uh, in choosing the president. Mm. I guess having that in the movie would have made the experience of watching it uh, more educational, but uh, again, uncomfortable. And actually, there's no mention of the Electoral College in the movie A More Perfect Union at all. So these compromises made the American Civil War inevitable, were instrumental in creating racial segregation until the, until the regressive forces were, forced, were forced to abandon it in the freaking 1960s. It also made the U.S. government inherently non-representative. Case in point, the Republicans holding the White House, Senate and Supreme Court against the express wishes and votes of the people. The regressive forces that forced the Constitutional Convention to agree to form an institutionally undemocratic regime in 1787 are the same forces that have brought the U.S. to an unprecedented political crisis in 2020. The same way of thinking to a T. And the other side, their inclination to look at compromise as an inherently good and necessary thing is a political staple in much of the world today. Thanks, Obama. Why not tell a different story? That the revolutionary and progressive forces had no choice but to momentarily, momentarily concede to the powers of oppression so that they can avoid calamity? And maybe now that the British Empire is no more, that the US has been the preeminent world power for about 80 years, now that calamity is here because of the compromise, Maybe the time for a new constitution is nigh. Hmm? I like this story much better. So I hope you enjoyed this uh, rant-filled episode. Next week we'll talk about the slavery in America through Gone with the Wind. I'll do it with Rutger. And how the slavery story was told and incorporated in the American memory. So thank you all for tuning in. Thank you, patrons, for supporting the show, and we'll see you all next time. Bye-bye.